Well, thanks uh, very much for having me here. I know that obviously you didn't have much to do with it, but <laughs> I will, I'll be looking forward to all that welcoming spirit coming from you. <laughs> okay, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today. We're carrying on with the series that we've been doing. Steph's been doing a series in 1 Corinthians pretty uh, systematically through the book. Um, picking up in uh, chapter 6, we're going to do the whole chapter today. We've got quite a lot to get through. I've got a lot to get through. Um, hopefully it's a blessing. And really my prayer is um, that I won't ex- obscure in any way the Word of God because it really is awesome, the Word of God. So let's like really delve in. Can you bring up the, the verses? Thanks. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world, um, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Wow, that's an, an awesome passage of Scripture. Thank you, God, for that incredible revelation of yourself in so many ways. And I just pray that you will uh, reveal yourself to our hearts um, and draw us um, to a place where we can say we glorify you with our bodies. Amen. About a year ago, um, the manageress at Jesse's Nursery did a bit of an administrative bluffs, um, and unfortunately there was a break-in at the nursery, uh, there was a, and they stole the money that she was meant to have deposited on the Friday. 
And the owner immediately took really strong action against the manageress. She was demoted to a very junior, like the most junior position in the nursery, which involves nappies. Um, and uh, the whole thing was made very uh, serious. Uh, there were like uh, accountants' letters going around. She was summoned to various um, uh, like official meetings, and she was basically asked to compensate the money that had been stolen from the break-in. Um, and it was pretty clear that if she had done that, the whole issue would have sort of died down. Now, what you might be really shocked to hear is that the manageress and the owner both attended the same church and they continued to do so during the time they were sisters in the Lord. Let's look at uh, verses 1 to 8. Uh, we're just going to, um, first of all, look at this whole issue of court cases between believers. Paul is making a clear distinction between secular courts and some of the arbitration with, that one can do within the church. Paul is working from a given fact that every believer will be involved in judging the world. For this reason, you'll easily find a qualified arbitrator within the church. So to judge between minor disputes is a trifle in comparison um, with how litigation, um, with, with what, what we will um, one day do when we judge the world. It's a minor issue to judge things within the church. The issue at stake here, though, is much less about um, taking somebody to court. Um, the main issue is godliness. What Paul is getting worked up about is the character of their arguments. In the context of the passage, it's clear that they were greedy. Um, they were possibly swindlers, even cheats. So the issue here is much more about the attitude that they've got than the fact that they're going to the courts. It's, an amazing, um, it's amazingly perceptive. If you address the attitudes of greed and deception, then it becomes very straightforward to resolve these sort of issues with the godly arbitrator. What we have here are two people with some sort of financial complaint. Um, it was possibly something to do with property. They're probably wealthy because in, the, uh, in Corinth in those days it was really only the wealthy who could go to court, although that's obviously changed in our day. The main issue is what was going on in their hearts. Um, the issue is are they treating each other like brothers and sisters in Christ? That's okay. You can take the uh, slide down. Thanks, Pete. The reason why almost any Christian is qualified to arbitrate in such matters is because Christians will first and foremost be concerned about the heart, about the heart attitude towards each other, relationships amongst the two parties. And on that basis, surely it's clear that arbitration becomes a much simpler task if you've got people that are working from a common um, base of love. When dealing with this issue of um, court cases, it's really important not to take it out of proportion or take it out of context. For example, you could easily come up with an example or, or, or um, a situation that's much uh, more difficult to resolve. Say, for example, a divorce where a husband is, um, is leaving his wife and not prepared to um, um, provide for them sufficiently. Can we apply this directly from, um, from this passage? I think there are some things that we can draw from it, but we shouldn't do it, make a blanket application. The reason is that um, Paul is de dealing with greed, um, he's dealing with cheaters. In the example of divorce, there's a much deeper issue at stake. There's a husband's responsibility to provide for his family, neglect, abandonment. This passage definitely is instructive to the wife that she should not be greedy, and the same for the husband, that they should seek to resolve it within the church. But I believe that with, an, with a divorce, for example, there are other factors that the Bible addresses in other ways that need to be brought in. So, the support, so with the support and guidance of godly leaders in the church, surely the, wrong, the wronged wife would be right to seek um, the provision that is rightly hers from her husband. 
So let's not uh, apply um, principles from, the, from this lesson um, out of context, I suppose. However, there is this, this thing of being prepared to be wronged. We must be prepared to be wronged. Um, and that seems odd if you look at it from one sense, because isn't God a God of justice? Isn't God a God who wants to have things done right? Well, if we're going to talk about the character of God as a just God, we need to look at something else about him, um, and that is we need to look at the cross. It's often been explained that the cross, at the cross we see the greatest demonstration of the justice of God where he deals um, with sin in an unrelenting way. His wrath is poured out at sin. But the sin was taken by Jesus. The sin was taken on himself, a perfect, righteous, good man. So surely there's an injustice in that, if you look at it from one perspective. There's a massive injustice at the cross. And if we think about that, and many have rejected the, the notion of God pouring out his wrath on his son at the cross because it seems so terribly unjust. They've even called it cosmic child abuse if the Son of God is punished by the Father. Is that right? And how do we make sense of that? Where is the justice in that? There's one thing, uh, one attribute of God that turns the cross from being the most unjust um, event in history to making it something that we worship, we glorify, we lift it up, we say I boast nothing but the cross of Christ. There's one thing about God that turns it all around, um, and that is seen actually in sort of the hidden text in the beginning in Corinthians and then comes bursting out, the answer is love. It's the love of God. It's God's omnipotence, God's omnipresence, all those things don't turn the cross from being unjust to being just, but it's God's love that does that. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still, still sinners, Christ died for us. So really, we have to come to this passage and lots of these issues that we're dealing in Corinthians, all of these various um, problems that Paul has to address with the, with the underlying issue of love, the underlying um, solution of love. Um, and to be honest, it's not every day that you have Christians fighting against each other um, in, in the churches. I mean, it does happen, like from the example I quoted, but there's a principle here that we can all apply. There's a principle we can all take away, and that is how we, um, how we cope with disagreements, how we cope with being wrongly treated. Um, Jesus, uh, it's lovely to hear the, Jesus' own words on this. He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. The sacrificial nature of our lives as Christians is paramount to how we are. Um, and that is why it is, it is right to be treated unjustly in some situations. We are following Jesus um, in, in the way that he's called us to. And as I say, in Corinthians, this underlies so much of what Paul's going on about. He talks about them as brothers. Don't wrong your brother. How can you take your brother to court? When you're talking about a brother, there's a relational um, connection there that, that is so different. And that is what defines us when we come into the body of Christ. So that is why the, 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 the issue of love is really undergirding his message to them. Don't wrong a brother. You've already lost if that's what you've done. Paul deals with more and more issues, and then there's the issue of gifts, and there have been lots of issues, and then eventually in 1 Corinthians 13, he can't contain himself anymore, and he just bursts out. Now, Paul is the guy, he's like the theological type, he like puts things in real good order, he's um, very systematic, 
But in 1 Corinthians 13, which is that passage about love, you see the, probably the most beautiful presentation, poetical presentation of love in the whole Bible. It's just this is what's bursting inside Paul as he's writing this stuff to the believers. This is what it's about, guys. It's about love. And that comes out. And that's why probably half of weddings have, have this 1 Corinthians 13 read at them. Rightly so, because we just glory in love. That undergirds what we're on about. But Paul is pretty livid with these guys. Uh, you could say he's, he's fuming um, because th- that doesn't describe them. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, notice the little phrase, do you not know? And it appears loads of times in this chapter, lots of times in the book. Paul keeps saying, do you not know? Do you not know? What I think he's actually saying is, uh, duh, <laughs> do you not know? How can, how can you not get this? Okay. Duh. Do you not know that um, saints will judge the world? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know? Duh. Your bodies are members of Christ. Okay. He's expecting them to know this stuff. Okay, he's expecting them. Yes, they're a young church. Yes, they're in Corinth, the massive big city with all kinds of pressures. But come on, guys, you should know this. And what about it? What about it? That should determine how you live. Okay, so this truth should determine your choices that you are making. And that forms the basis of Paul's appeal to them. He's not coming down in in judgment and in threatening language to them. He appeals to uh, that they are fit for purpose. They have been um, equipped. Do you not know that all these things are true? You are fit for your purpose. You have um, what it takes. the purpose will come th- um, to as we as we flesh the rest of the passage out, but it's it's right at the end of the of the chapter. Glorify God in your bodies. Our purpose is glorifying God in our bodies, in our whole being, and you are fit for that purpose. He says. So we come back to the passage in six nine. Maybe you can get it up, Pete. Thanks. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I'm just going to look at the words very quickly. Sexually immoral, sometimes translated in an old-fashioned way as fornicators. Basically, it's a catch-all term for illicit sexual behavior. It would have included sex with the wrong partner. That means someone else's wife, a prostitute, your stepmother. We saw that last week. Your sister. That means your sister in Christ. That, mean, that is how men are meant to be treating younger women, i.e. your girlfriend. It's also with the wrong uh, gender, with the wrong species. I'm not trying to be crass. The Bible is not crass. The Bible is very honest. The Bible is very blunt at times. And I don't want to um, shy away from uh, how the Bible puts things. Idolaters, uh, in, uh, in Corinth, um, as in many cities in those days, uh, religious practice and sex were very tied together. So idolatry there would have um, had a lot to do with sexual immorality. But of course, the world we live in today doesn't really uh, understand um, sex and idolatry. Worshipping sex is not really something we see much around us. Um, what re- relevance does the Bible have in a culture like this? Um, people who see the highest um, attainment in life as material gain, um, and then sex totally as the sort of fulfillment of their lives. It's difficult to really to relate London society or our world to that. Um, adultery, again... Um, 
Does our culture have any, any connections with a man who would go out to woo somebody else's wife, shrewdly deceiving her, enticing her, overwhelming her? That's the adulterer. Um, the uh, um, men involved in homosexuality, there are actually two words in the original, and most of the translations bring out either male prostitutes or effeminate as the one, and the other is um, the homosexual offender. Really, they're two, uh, sort of, again, old-fashioned words, a calamite and a sodomite. Those are the two words that are used in the original text, roughly. The calamite is the passive partner. The sodomite is the active partner in homosexual sex. The Bible is very specific how it names things. We now go into some of the non-sexual sins, thieves, greedy, drunkards. I think that's all pretty self-explanatory. Slanderers. Uh, this in the, the, the meaning has something of an aggressive, even a physical abusiveness in it, slanderers. And the swindler, he's really the cheat. Okay, so here's the problem. And Paul repeats it for a second time. He wraps this little um, section in it twice. Those who live like this, if this defines your essence, you will not be inheriting the kingdom of God. I just want to pick up, uh, Steph made a, a, a big point about this last week, about it's not whether you slip up and fall and are repentant, it's whether this defines you. Are you, you know, he talked about the boastful, the arrogant, the unrepentant, um, and it would be the same sort of theme here. If this, is, if this is what you boast in, if this is what you're unrepentant of, if this defines you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, there they really are, there's talk of two kingdoms. You will be inheriting the kingdom or you will not be inheriting the kingdom of God. You will inherit this kingdom, this earth, this world around us. Um, and that's really where all of us are until we inherit the kingdom of God. And for some, this world is absolutely satisfying. It's great, in fact. There's enough um, amusement, there's enough luxury and distraction in this world. But there are a few problems with this world. First of all, not everyone gets to enjoy it, um, even if some do. Secondly, on a spiritual level, this kingdom of this world belongs to Satan. He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is the, which is the, the worldly kingdom. And thirdly, because of that, um, this kingdom is not eternal. It will be destroyed. It will be destroyed by fire along with all who remain in it. This is the inheritance um, for the earthly kingdom. Now that's the bad news, um, and there is some amazing good news. And Paul goes straight into it, even though these guys have really wound him up. He just can't help himself. He's just, you know, that's not, he's not going to say, well, that's where I'm going to leave you guys. Look what he says. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. This is, uh, this is awesome. There's something utterly filthy about uh, sin. And God, God is so wise and so practical. He uses the most perfect metaphor to describe our conversion. He says you were washed. Sexual sin is not only messy in your heart, it's physically messy. Isn't the adulterer going to wash himself before he returns to his wife? Don't the calamite and the sodomite have to wash themselves? Isn't the drunkard covered in vomit and urine? I'm not trying to be crass. I'm trying to be real. And God our Father knows about the filth on our bodies. It's only part of the problem. The real issue is that our souls have been truly soiled. God knows this. And for those that God has revealed himself to, we know that as well. And look at the the wisdom and love of our Father. And I'm just going to pick up um, 
Thanks, Pete. That's fine. Pick up on some of the, the metaphors, some of the pictures that the, that the Bible used to describe this washing. It's, it's like God bathes us. He washes us with a warm, fragrant sponge, and he makes us lovely again. He dresses us beautifully. He puts cream on our skin and oil in our hair and perfume on our bodies. That's what it means to be sanctified. That's what it means to be made really lovely again by God. And when someone's in the process of becoming a Christian, two things happen in their hearts. First of all, they become suddenly aware of just how messy and how soiled they are. And then they become suddenly aware of just how beautiful they've been made by God. And look at that, um, that very important clause there. It is by God. You didn't wash. You were washed. You didn't make yourself beautiful. You were sanctified. And this is the, an amazing one, and we're going to spend eternity, I think, working out this mystery. You were justified. Imagine the judge comes along, um, and he has all the evidence laid before him, and he deliberates over the evidence after it's all been presented. And then with complete integrity, he sums up, and he said, no, you are justified. I find nothing wrong with you. There is no evidence, and the case has to be dismissed. There is no evidence. It's very different to saying, okay, there's the evidence. Well, here's a substitute, um, which is another aspect of our salvation, I know, but that's not what this is dealing with. This is, there is no evidence. You're justified. You're actually completely right. Uh, case is dismissed. It's thrown out of court. And that is what the nature of our salvation is, that the judge would say, uh, there is no evidence against you. But where is it? Because in our hearts, we know that there, that there is and was evidence. What's happened? Um, and uh, the end of verse 11 says, You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. On the cross, Jesus really and truly has taken away all the evidence against us. He destroyed it, nailing it to the cross once and for all. Praise God, eh? Okay. Um, now, uh, can we get the uh, second slide up, Pete? We get into... Um, a bit more of a, uh, a discussion here. I think that it's, it's pretty accepted that there's a bit of a dialogue going on between Paul and the Corinthians here. Um, these are either things that they've written to him and, and uh, talked about or that they are well known for, um, for holding to and blurting out. So I'll sort of do this in a little bit of a, a dialogue way. The Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, they say, and, stom and the stomach for food. Come on, live it up a bit, and God will destroy both one and the other, replies Paul. Well, what's really amazing about the way Paul deals with this is that he doesn't just come down heavy-handed and dismiss these Corinthians. If I had planted a little church in Greece somewhere and they came up with this little chant, everything's lawful, everything's lawful, I would have, I'm sure, battered them out and just told them that they just better shut up and they've got it wrong. But he doesn't, okay? Why not? Because he's just told them that they're justified, okay? They're justified. So in one sense, there is this, there is nothing against me. Everything is lawful. The Corinthians have really understood the work of justification, um, and we really need to lift them up as an example for that. We need to be like them in understanding just how justified we are. There was no um, issue of dealing with religiosity in Corinth. Paul didn't have to do that as he might have had to do in Galatians or something like that. They understood just how clean they actually were. Okay, so let's understand just how clean and how washed we actually are. 
But he does set it up very intentionally with, uh, so he sets up the legal status that you are justified with the choices that we make, your lifestyle. He does that time and time again. You are justified, you were washed, and now what about the choices we make? We have lots of opportunities in life, um, be they food or sex, whatever we choose to worship. Um, but what choices are we going to make? Are we going to indulge just because it's there, which seems to be happening there? Are we going to be an opportunist, snatching every situation, greedily grabbing what we can? So for example, just because your body's got a mouth, it's got a digestive system, everything it needs, you've got the right equipment to indulge in food. It's there, okay? You've been made like that. That's what the Corinthians are saying. The body's for food, right? Okay, but just because you've got the right apparatus doesn't mean you indulge. That's what Paul's saying to them. You need to be considered. You need to be fit for purpose. What is your ultimate purpose? Your ultimate purpose is not indulgence. It's glorifying God with your bodies. How about the apparatus uh, for sexual immorality? We've all got it. You've got it, okay? And that's what they're kind of implying. They didn't say it exactly. Um, but Paul answers a, a hidden question. Um, the body is not meant for sexual immorality because that's how they were living it out. So you might have the equipment... But you are fit for purpose, and we have to keep that in mind. We have to stay mindful that God demands to be worshipped, to be glorified. You know what? We have the equipment to glorify God as well. Okay? We have what it takes um, to bring God glory. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome that we are actually able in our bodies to glorify God? Now, as we look from uh, verse 13 onwards, there's uh, one word that Paul unpacks. He pads it up. He puts meaning onto it. He just expands this word so beautifully, and that's the word body. And we're going to spend the last bit of the time just looking at that word and just, just getting to grips of what he's got going with that. Verse 13, the stomach, which is part of the body, will be destroyed. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 14, the body will be raised. Your bodies are members of Christ. Don't make your bodies members of a prostitute's body. When you have sex, two bodies become one. Verse 18, sexual sin is different because it's against your own body. Verse 19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You and your body does not belong to you. You were bought at a price. Glorify God in your body. I just want to ask, are there, are there any that have a misunderstanding of the significance of your body? Do you see that there's a division between the significance of your body and your spirit? Do we draw, do we draw a line like that, like many, many, many do, that separate the, the, the existence of our body and our physical from our spirit? We feed our spirits, we read the Bible, we pray, we meditate on God, we feed it, we nurture it, we care for it, because we glorify God in our spirit. But how about our bodies? Do we just uh, um, not terribly concerned about it? What effect it's having on our spirit? And that's the key thing. It's because it has an effect on our spirit. It has an effect on our whole being. So if you separate them, you're in danger of being affected. Um, your, your whole spiritual, your whole existence is in danger of being affected. Or maybe we're happy to let our body have a bit of free reign and we flirt with some of the passions of our body. And we know what those are well. Each of us, we know it well. There's a great pull in each one of us to engage ourselves deeply in life. We're not happy to be just peripheral. And I think all of the stuff that Paul's going on about here with body and the immersion, it's like he's talking about full immersion. And there's, there's just a sense of being overwhelmed. 
And that is very much part of our existence, okay? Whether we are believers or not, there's a, there's a sense of just wanting to be fully engaged in life. Um, and I mean, he talks about it, and I just, I mean, for example, do you not know that you are members of Christ? Your bodies are members of Christ. There's this overwhelming immersion that we have. I remember when I was uh, a kid, I used to love, like, sinking down to the bottom of the pool, and then I would, with all my might, press up, and as I came out, I would tuck into a little ball and close my eyes and just tumble and tumble and tumble down until I sort of grad. I just lost all sense of up and down. I was just giddy. It was like delicious experience. And I'd like bump against the bottom of the floor. Oh, and then I'd like do it again. There's this just like overwhelming kind of full immersion that I was going through. Yeah. I still do it if you catch me at the leisure center with my boys. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then I moved on a little bit and I was really into clubbing and I found it there as well. It was like you just, I just immersed the, the, the heat and the music and the, and the immersion in it. Um, obviously, um, alcohol has a massive effect. There's, but there's a desire. You know, we are unsatisfied with the mundane. We are unsatisfied with um, being compartmentalized and being simplistic because that's how we've been made. We have been fearfully and wonderfully made. God made us in this way. So, of course, we need to embrace it. But fit for purpose, you embrace it in the way that God has designed it. And I think that's the, the, the heart of what he's, what he's um, dealing with here. As a little aside, I want to uh, challenge you not to say, I can't control it. Um, Paul says, I will not be enslaved by anything. I will not be overwhelmed by anything. He's making a choice there. There's an expectation by Paul. There was an expectation by Jesus. There's an expectation throughout the Bible that you are not... Um, that you are able not to be overwhelmed by things that you are not fit for purpose, that are not part of your purpose. So whatever you do, don't make an excuse and say, I can't control it. No doubt we need help along the way, for sure. But God has given us the equipment to glorify him, yeah? So um, do not be mastered. The reason why we should not be mastered by anything else, Paul says, is because we have already been fully immersed somewhere else. Do you not know, verse 13, your bodies are meant for the Lord, and the Lord Jesus is meant for your body. I mean, what is that all about? The Lord Jesus is meant for your body. Jesus died on the cross. He didn't just die for our souls to be saved. He died for our whole beings, for our whole existence. He says that Jesus in Mark he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. There's a recognition that our whole being is wrapped up in how we love God and in the same way that when we, die, when, uh, when we are saved and brought to life again, it's our whole being. Uh, and later in Corinthians, Paul makes a big deal about the bodily resurrection. We love our bodies, um, and, that's, and rightly so. Now... Um, when he, God made man, he made him from the dust of the earth. Yet God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Just feel how, how earthy this is. And he became a living creature. God completely overwhelmed that first man and that first woman. Their experience of being fully immersed in their creator was more profound and more intoxicating. It was more delicious than all the counterfeits that we are offered today. And God brought man and woman together and he said, immerse yourself in each other. Glorify me in your bodies. 
What a profound existence Adam and Eve must have had. Their nostrils still warm from the very breath of God. And they were given every resource in the world. Every living creature came to them in submission. Everything in creation that was beautiful, that was exciting, that was awesome, everything was given to them by God. And they lived out their lives, bringing this awesome but somewhat wild world into submission. And one thing could be said of them, that they glorify God with their bodies. We might think that that's all been lost. After all, they didn't stay like that for long, and sin came into the world. The wonderful existence was destroyed in a moment. I think that helps us a little bit to understand. I don't know, sometimes it's hard to really understand the, the offense of sin. But maybe understanding it from this perspective is helpful. Adam and Eve did not find God sufficient. Didn't he overwhelm them enough? Had he not provided them with a thoroughly awesome existence in every possible way? Surely we can sin, see that their sin was a terrible rejection of God. It wasn't so much the eating of the forbidden food, food, fruit. It was a denial of the overwhelming sufficiency of God their Father. That God wasn't sufficient. And the exact same issue is true today. In fact, God has gone way, way, way beyond what he gave Adam and Eve. He has gone so far as sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ. We often talk about Jesus' death on the cross. We talk about the cost of that. We talk about the cost to God. It wasn't our cost. It was the cost to God and to Jesus. He sent his willing son, um, and he suffered under the rejection. Again, even Jesus' death was orchestrated by the rejection of, of man, his own creation. If we don't believe that uh, the death, Jesus' death on the cross was costly, if we don't think that our salvation was costly, um, we will not value, we will not be able to be fit for purpose, we will not be able to step into that place of glorifying God. If Adam and Eve's rejection of God led to their eventual death, as God said, how much more will rejection of Jesus Christ lead to eternal spiritual death? God sent Jesus to the world to overwhelm us again, to satisfy us, to allow us once again to become fully immersed. But now we become fully immersed within Jesus Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? How much more could God possibly do for us? Well, as God raised the Lord Jesus, so we also will be raised up. He will deliver us from this broken, shattered world. He will bring us into perfect and beautiful and sat into his perfect presence. And that place is called the kingdom of God. I just want to finish off by talking about fleeing from sexual immorality. Um, I just plead with you, flee from sexual immorality. Don't even go close. Don't stand where you can observe it. If you think of somebody that flees, they're not in, in, danger, in the dangerous point right at that moment. They are observing it approaching. The danger's not there yet. But don't justify the spot where you're saying, uh, where you're standing, saying it's not dangerous yet or it's not sin yet. And if you speak like that, I really worry about your heart. Because if you know what God has done for you, do you not know? If you know what God has done for you, then surely you would say, let me flee from this place. Let me go. And don't justify your spot saying it's not dangerous. Don't be naive. 
even if there's a niggle in your conscience about the danger, where do you think that comes from? I can assure you the devil will not give you a niggle in your conscience about fleeing from sexual immorality. It is from the Holy Spirit. Young ladies, I plead with you, flee from any kind of sexual behavior that you would not do with Jesus physically beside you. You have the ability to entice a man. You have the ability to steadily, persuasively distract and disarm him. Maybe you're worried. Maybe you think the only way it will work out is if you go by the world's rules, as everyone else does. Don't do it. Flee. To entice a man sinfully is to have lost already. And men, I plead with you, don't try to conquer a woman. You have easy access to the ways of this world. You will be able to make her promises that aren't promises, offer things that aren't yours to offer, comfort her with deception. If you don't think you have this ability, I can assure you the devil will give it to you. He's prowling around to enable you. Flee from sexual immorality. You're not your own. You've been overwhelmed with God. You've been fully immersed in him, in Christ. He is your master. You're not your own. You are bought with a price. So let's glorify God with our body. Amen.